a podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people? That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey everybody, this is the Smart People Podcast, and this is Chris. And this is John. Welcome to this edition where we seek to expand your mind, increase your knowledge, open your brain, whatever you want to call it. We talk about a fairly common theme on this show, your brain that is, but wouldn't be smart without it. Do you feel smarter after this this chat we just had? I do feel a little smarter. Yeah. I do. I feel smarter just talking to the guy. We're going to talk to Dr. Richard Davidson today, and I, <laughs> I tried to pull up his CV, his Curriculum Vitae, I think that stands for, and it was 78 pages long, so I closed that pretty quickly. He has a new book out, and it's pretty amazing, highly recommend it. It is called The Emotional Life of Your Brain, and he focuses a lot of his research around our different emotional styles. I like you ask a question during this interview, how do emotional styles differ from personality? I feel like that's a good thing to get out there. That's exactly why the question came up. That's why I asked it, dumbass. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, but I I mean, I agree. Emotional style, I'd never really heard of prior to looking up Dr. Davidson's work and book and all that kind of stuff. And after reading through it and understanding what it was, it made sense. Right. Like there's the six emotional styles, which he goes through a couple of during the interview. You can check it out online. I'm sure you can find them somewhere. Everybody check them out. But yeah, it's very interesting stuff. Yeah, and, and the thing is, what, what we really tried to hone in on in this interview you'll hear is how he relates it to not, I don't want to say non-scientific, but it's it's emotion, it's real. It's He's not just, here's what the data shows, you know, he he's friends with the Dalai Lama, like really good friends. And we talked to him a lot about meditation, because that's something that I think is cool and I wish I did more. We all wish we did. And how science backs up meditation. I mean, your brain can change. And... I don't know. It's it's really cool. Dr. Davidson, he went to NYU. He went to Harvard. He has all these awards, including a National Institute of Mental Health Award, a Merit Award from NIMH, an Established Investigator Award from another amazing place. It goes on and on. Actually, you can check out more about him at richardjdavidson.com. That's his website. Another one that I highly recommend is Investigating Healthy Minds. It's really cool. It, it, it talks about kind of how that, that website's all about how our brain can change and how we can do really cool things. There's a recent article about how yoga and deep breathing is being used to address post-traumatic stress in our soldiers. And I just think his research is really cool. I mean, if our brain is the thing that makes us human, why not learn more about it? Yeah, and I've done some deep breathing exercises actually to help me fall asleep and that kind of stuff. And I've always talked about getting into yoga. You, all my friends, make fun of me because they're like, oh, yoga. But everybody that I know that goes to yoga says it's the most amazing thing ever. I I just don't like it. So I'm going to have to check it out pretty soon here. I don't want to downplay the fact in this episode that the guy we have on this interview is a genius. He's not just, uh, he's got a doctorate. 
please don't take it for granted. I'm surprised we ever get to talk to people this smart. But we're going to turn it over to Dr. Davidson here in a little bit. A couple of housekeeping issues. Primarily, we need you guys to be part of this. You know we're on Ustream. I don't know if you know this yet, but you should be watching these things and asking him questions. This guy knows the Dalai Lama. Ask him a question. Are, just, you, are you angry over I'm, there? Or no, are you okay? I'm, getting, I'm sorry. I'm getting oh, angry. Oh, man. We put it up there. Like, come on. Well, yeah, we put it up there a little late, but head over to Facebook. Check us out over there. We're trying to post when we're going to be live for the interviews, and we'll link to the Ustream account and that kind of stuff. You can come over, check us out, join the chat, ask some questions on there, or if you just want to listen and, and laugh at us as we pass notes to each other, yes, you can do that too. It's funny looking. But just, you know, come over there. Come over to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Download some episodes on there. If you've missed some old ones, click on the Amazon banner, do some shopping, get some cool stuff, help us out, stay involved. Enjoy it. Enjoy it, most of all. And now we turn it over to Dr. Richard Davidson. The first question I had for you was, I tend to, to hear the phrase often that everybody has their own issues. Everybody has things that they deal with. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your research kind of revolves around the fact that that might be true. The brain is extremely individualized. People have a range of emotions and they can, they can feel different things to the same stimulus. Is that kind of something that you would agree with and also... How do you feel about the statement that everybody has their own issues that they deal with? Well, I think um, that statement is colloquially true. Uh, We each have our own emotional fingerprint, we can say, uh, that's unique. So no two individuals respond in the same way to a particular challenge that they may face. And that's really one of the most striking things about emotion when you observe it in people, particularly in response to life slings and arrows. We are all just being continuously challenged by minor stresses and sometimes major adversities, and how we respond to those challenges differs across people. And those differences really are the subject matter of my book, Um, And I talk about uh, the ways in which neuroscientific research has uncovered uh, more more understanding of what it is that differs uh, across individuals and how those differences are linked to uh, different circuits in the brain and how those circuits affect our behavior and our biology. When you go through all this, you talk about the you have six different emotional styles, and I know that's kind of the basis for your work. I was hoping you could kind of sum up where that came from and what you mean by the different emotional styles. Sure. These emotional styles are dimensions. Each of the six is a different dimension, and we all have all six dimensions. And these are dimensions along which we differ in how we respond to emotionally significant events. These styles really were the product of 30 years of neuroscientific research. It wasn't that one day I sat (laughs) down and thought about, you know, how we may all differ in our emotional styles, but rather these styles were um, inferred 
from uh, a long history of, of doing this kind of research. So we can talk about a few of the styles to give some concrete examples. Uh, one of the styles I call resilience, and what is meant by resilience is how fast or how slowly you respond to adversity. Some people, when they confront a stressful challenge, they are able to just bounce right back. Uh, and uh, they may be affected by it in the moment, but they're able to uh, recover very quickly and just resume whatever uh, they were doing previously. For other people, the same challenge may produce a much longer uh, duration response, uh, something that perseverates for a long period of time, it reverberates. Uh, they're unable to shake themselves loose from it. Uh, it um, may persist for days. It may affect their interactions with other people. Um, uh, it may affect their sleep um, that night and the night after, uh, So, and, and sometimes for, for quite a long time. So there are huge differences among people in this quality of resilience. We all have this dimension. Where we differ on where along this dimension we fall. So that's an example of one of the emotional styles. And uh, it turns out that we've learned quite a bit uh, in the neuroscience laboratory about the specific brain circuits that govern the rapidity with which a person recovers. Uh, and um, uh, that information has really helped us to understand what produces these variations among people in this um, quality of resilience. And that was something I actually wanted to jump in real quick and talk about. Is there a connection between these emotional styles and then if you guys are doing brain scans on people and being able to see neural activity? I mean, do you see the link there? Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, the information that we gleaned from the brain scans was critical in formulating these emotional styles in the first place. Every one of these six emotional styles is linked to a specific brain circuit uh, that is based upon hard-nosed neuroscientific evidence. Uh, and um, that uh, really was one of the central defining criteria for the characterization of an emotional style. And can you kind of go into a little bit of the definition with the difference between emotional style as compared to, I guess, you know, personality traits or people's moods or just feelings? Sure. Sure. So uh, we, we know a lot about personality traits. They've been around for a long time. Personality traits like uh, introversion, extroversion, that's one personality trait, or neuroticism is another personality trait. Um, these personality traits have been with us um, really for more than 100 years um, uh, in the history of psychology. And uh, I think it's fair to say that these personality traits are brainless. That is, they evolved outside of and, and really prior to neuroscientific evidence. So they're not characteristics that are based directly upon what we know about the brain. Um, they likely are comprised of a number of different of the emotional styles that I described in, in my book. So we can take different personality traits like neuroticism and we can um, think about how they may be produced by some combination 
of the six emotional styles that I described. So you can think of the emotional styles as more basic building blocks from which personality and mood emerge. When I hear the emotional styles and you talk about them, I know that myself and probably most people, they tend to wonder, okay, I'm, am I born with this? Is this something that can't change. So I wanted to talk, I know you talk about neuroplasticity and the ability of the brain to kind of change and expand. And I was hoping you could kind of go into that. Is this something we can modify as we get older? And is there a direction we should be looking to move towards? Those are great questions. So the, um, in terms of the first part of that question, uh, are we born with these characteristics? Uh, there are certainly some genetic influences that um, predispose a person in one or another direction on each of these dimensions uh, and pre- place some very broad constraints uh, on um, where a person falls on these dimensions. Having said that, though, as you um, indicate, uh, a major thrust of the work that we do is on plasticity and transformation. And one of the greatest insights of modern neuroscience is the insights around this idea of plasticity. The the word neuroplasticity refers to the fact that the brain can change in response to experience and in response to training. And um, in many ways, we, we understand the brain as the organ of plasticity. It's the organ of change. It's built to change in response to experience. Uh, and our brains are constantly being shaped by our experiences. Uh, one of the points that I make in the book is that rather than leaving our brains to be unwittingly shaped by forces around us, we could take more responsibility for our own brains and actually shape them intentionally in ways that might promote well-being. So um, we can determine where we fall on each of these six dimensions of emotional style. And if we find that for uh, a particular person, that where she or he falls on any one of these dimensions is not optimal, then uh, there are things that can be done to uh, uh, move a person uh, and actually induce neuroplastic changes, which would change these brain circuits in ways that um, can uh, change one's emotional style. Now, it's important to say um, that there is no ideal emotional style. Different emotional styles may be Uh, more suited to certain individuals and other emotional styles to other individuals. It really depends upon what kind of environment the person lives in, what their preferences are, what kind of work they do, what kind of relationships they have, and so forth. So what's best for one person is not necessarily best for another person. So there's no optimal emotional style. I didn't even have this question until you just mentioned that. It's a huge passion of mine is finding what you're good at, what you want to do for your whole life. And do you ever tie that into emotional styles? I mean, like you said, there's no perfect one for anybody. Do you ever Mm -hmm. see or have you done any research or worked with anyone who says these emotional styles work best in these professions or going towards this goal? Well, I think that that's a very important area uh, of investigation. I would say that there is not a whole lot of good science uh, around that issue at this point in time, although certainly uh, one can, I think, investigate that with rigorous scientific methods. 
but I would say that it, it's really even more differentiated than that. It's, I wouldn't say that there's an optimal style for a particular profession, um, because uh, it's usually the case that there are a lot of different ways in which a person can be successful uh, in a particular profession. Uh, and so it really will depend upon more local circumstances, so to speak, um, uh, and also other aspects of that individual's life, what kind of relationships they may have, uh, and so forth. Uh, and so uh, I think it's going to be difficult to make broad prescriptions about what may be best for a kind of category of person. I think each person um, really needs to figure out for him or herself whether their emotional styles are working for them or not. Uh, and if they're not working for them, there are things they could do about it. Okay, yeah. That that was just something that I always wonder if people are kind of made for a certain position or job or category. So I just had to ask. I wanted to transition a little. I know that you discuss a little bit in your book, The Emotional Life of Your Brain. You talk a little bit about meditation. And I know that through doing research online about you and your work, you talk about meditation. And that's something that John and I have discussed previously on the podcast. We've tried. It's a it's an idea that I, I love. So I kind of wanted to get your take as a neuroscientist, as somebody who's been doing this for a long time and has clearly proven themselves in the field of solid science. What science is there behind meditation? And I just really want to dive into that subject with you. Research on meditation has really uh, exploded exponentially over the last um, 10 years in particular. And uh, there really is now, I would say, a wealth of scientific evidence that indicates that meditation can change the function and structure of the brain uh, and can change the brain in ways that are beneficial. From a Western scientific perspective, uh, there are a few things to keep in mind. One is that there isn't one form of meditation. There are many different kinds of meditation, and different kinds of meditation don't always produce the same effect, so that there are going to be some variations among types of meditation. Uh, having said that, many forms of meditation operate on circuits that are important for the regulation of attention and also circuits that are important in the regulation of emotion. Those are two big domains that are impacted by meditation. Uh, so many forms of meditation in one way or another uh, can affect brain circuits that underlie the regulation of attention and the regulation of emotion. Uh, and so those are ways in which meditation may change a person. That's so interesting. And one of the things that absolutely blew my mind is you got the chance to spend some time with the Dalai Lama can you just explain to our listeners what that experience was like and what you guys discussed for, I guess, in research of one of your books? Well, I've um, had the honor and privilege of spending quite a bit of time with him over the last 20 years. I first met him in 1992, and uh, over the last you know, five or eight years, I've been able to see him three or four times a year. Uh, and so uh, that's been a real privilege, and I've learned a an enormous amount, and I think it's fair to say without exaggerating that he has dramatically changed the course of my career and my life. Uh, and he is a living example, in my view, of the 
power of uh, neuroplasticity uh, and the power of uh, mental training to cultivate uh, virtuous qualities like uh, kindness and compassion. And uh, you feel it when you're with him. And uh, most people who are in his presence have that experience. And uh, it's on the one hand, uh, uh, so extraordinary. On the other hand, it's very ordinary. That is, he's a a very regular human being. And so uh, that uh, really uh, just helps to, uh, I think, um, communicate the the strength of the of of human transformation, the possibility of human transformation. You know, and it's so crazy because I would imagine the two of you come together and you talk, and it's the epitome of Western meets Eastern culture. I mean, it's like you have the the science, you have the hard data, and he has the. I don't know if it's emotional attachment or just the the EQ, if you will. Was that just a, a great kind of melding of the minds when you guys kind of talk and you say, here's the science behind all of the things you have done with meditation, with healing and, and emotion and things like that? It's, yes, it's totally awesome. Uh, and uh, the kind of uh, uh, synergies uh, and parallels are um, really... Uh, striking. And uh, I think both of us realize the significance of, um, uh, of the fact that through this ancient contemplative tradition that's more than 2,500 years old and modern neuroscience, um, we very much are arriving at very similar places. Uh, and uh, that's just incredible. And that, I guess that's exactly what I was getting towards. It's amazing how you could come from such different upbringings, if you will, or I don't necessarily want to say privileges, but just mindsets and kind of arrive at, like you said, the same conclusions. It's just, it's such a cool thought. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, we like to leave our listeners with, you know, a little nugget of information. And given all the things you have done in terms of studying the brain, personality types, emotions, what have you seen seem the most beneficial in terms of how people kind of better themselves through practice of might it be meditation or just, you know, being cognizant of their daily activities? What do you recommend in terms of turning your emotional state for the better? Well, it's a wonderful question. And, uh, my recommendation to listeners uh, is is simple, and it is to reflect on the possibility that we can all change for the better, uh, uh, and it, we can do that because the brain exhibits neuroplasticity, uh, and it doesn't take much if we begin to notice. Uh, certain things in our mind and begin to pay attention to what's happening in our mind and remind ourselves of uh, the opportunities that we have to practice kindness and compassion and to be mindful of our surroundings. We all have the seeds of this within us. Uh, It's kind of like language. All of us have the capacity to learn a language we need to be raised in a linguistic community for that potential to be actualized. And uh, it's very similar for qualities like compassion. 
uh, if we are in situations where we can remind ourselves of the importance of these qualities, we all have it within us to express these qualities. And um, people report that when they do, they themselves feel happier. That is, uh, happy, happiness for oneself is um, one of the wonderful byproducts of this. And we also get to make other people happier. Uh, through that process, I think we can make the world a better place. Well, that's, I mean, that's such a fantastic piece of advice. And Dr. Davidson, I really, you know, really want to thank you for being on the show. Your book, The Emotional Life of Your Brain is fantastic. We highly recommend it for our listeners. Is there anywhere else that you want to plug to send our listeners to? I mean, do you have a website or other books coming out or just anything that you want them to check out? Yes, uh, please go to two websites. One is uh, my website, richardjdavidson.com. And the other is the website for our center. Uh, it's called the Center for Investigating Healthy Minds. And the website is investigatinghealthyminds.org. That's all one word, investigatinghealthyminds.org. You know, I like that. I'm definitely going to check that out right now. It's just a catchy title. And, and I think it's something that, that we try to do. And that's what we do on the podcast. We look at how to make your mind a little better. So again, thank you so much. You know, I appreciate you being on the show and sharing this message with uh, with us and with everyone else. Thank you. It was my pleasure. All righty. Have a good one. You too. Bye-bye. Wow. Well, now that you've learned something, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, click that Amazon banner, throw thousands of dollars into the <laughs> shopping cart. You know, help us out some. We need to keep getting guests like this. We're trying to promote ourselves. We're trying to do some advertising, get some more listeners so we can get bigger and bigger guests. So Amazon's one of the best ways you can help us out. You can also help us out with that donate button over on the website. If you have some extra money just sitting around, send five, ten bucks our way. If everybody does it, it starts to add up. And you know what I would say? I, this I'm going to go on a limb. I would say even more so than your money. We need your support. We need you to tell people. We're not marketing because we don't have the time between recording and writing and working and it's crazy. So we need to enlist. It's like we need to crowdsource advertising. So that's what I'm going to ask of you. Smart People Podcast, we're going to do a, a newsletter. Check us out there. And thanks for tuning in, man. Really appreciate it. Yeah, and if you follow us on Twitter, make sure you retweet when we post about the episode. So when the episode goes live... Just do, do that one little button click on, on Twitter. Hit the retweet. Let your friends see. You know, tell them, hey, I listen to this. You should too. I promise you every time you mention us in a tweet, both John and I will text or something IM each other and be like, oh, got a retweet. It's badass. Yeah, we get really happy. It's kind of sad. So thanks for making our day brighter. Hope you enjoyed it. Catch you next week. See you guys. Thank you again.